Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Welcome, everybody, to the Nonprofit Everything podcast, the podcast where we talk about everything nonprofit. Just as a reminder, the way this works is you go to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits website, you click the podcast button, um, and you can ask us questions there, and Stacy and I will answer those questions. And if we don't know the answer to those questions, we'll rope in an expert and ask the expert that question. Um, and we're excited that we're actually going to get to do this this episode. So we've got an expert in to talk about something that Stacy and I just didn't know enough about, which is nice. Yes. So I'm Andy Shurick. I'm Stacy Wedding. It's great to be here with you all. Stacy, we'll start. Here's one for you, the first one. I keep getting email and website notifications about privacy and GDPR. What is that? Do I need to worry about it for my organization's website? I am so glad this question came up, Andy. I don't know about you, but my inbox was overflowing with all sorts of uh, lists I subscribe to and companies, right? The week, I think this went, GDPR went into effect um, May 25th, and literally everybody and anybody was sending something out. And so, of course, I didn't know much about it, so did a little bit of my own research, and I'll try to share the little bit I know, certainly um, not the expert by any means, but um, GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation, and it's Europe's new privacy law, so basically raises the bar for protection of personal data, um, basically any data that can be linked to an individual um, and there's all sorts of, I mean, it can impose fines and uh, penalties and um, legal, has legal ramifications for companies, nonprofits, government agencies that don't uh, follow it. So, so as far as the question about, you know, do I need to worry about it for my organization's website, there's really a couple of rules of thumb. Um, you know, first of all, your organization needs to be doing some sort of good service exchange with someone from like the European Union. Um, but there's a couple of caveats if you dig a little bit deeper into GDPR that talk about um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a financial transaction. So I'm thinking about this like from a nonprofit perspective. If you are selling a product or trying to get a donation from um somebody in the European, you know, a European country, and uh, they, their donor put in some information. So it was kind of personally trackable, you know, personally identifiable um, contact information, and your organization got it, and you specifically approached someone in that European country, you would be subject to GDPR. So there's this sort of line about, okay, Doing business with people in European countries is part of that and kind of good and service, goods and services exchange. But it's also things like if you did a survey and it was written in, let's say, that European country's language, that specific country's language, um, or there was a specific target talking about European residents and it was very much tailored to like European residents, this would also apply and mean that GDPR, um, 
it, you're kind of under effect with GDPR. And so there's all sorts of kind of privacy rules and how do you, you know, sending out notifications and making sure you have kind of up-to-date governance policies on, um, you know, how you collect and share information and, and that kind of stuff. Okay. So for for our normal U.S.-based nonprofits, though, if, if you're not soliciting donors in European countries and, you know, you're mostly U.S.-based, should you care about it at all? Um, I think you should care about it because there's sort of this trend that's happening that countries all over beyond just Europe are starting to look at what does this mean for privacy and data regulations. And one kind of distinction between U.S. companies, and when I say companies, meaning nonprofits too, but U.S. companies are actually um, sort of believe that collecting um, personally identifiable information on somebody is the right of an organization that's kind of collecting that data, right? And and that the organization owns it, whereas Europe believes the individual owns it. So okay. there's this huge distinction between kind of philosophies, but there's a lot of discussion going on about what does this mean? So I think it's not something to panic about unless, of course, you're like a nonprofit doing a lot of, if you're doing business, you know, actively trying to promote or market to sure. the European market, you absolutely need to get more informed about this. But if you're not, I don't think it's a panic button. I do think, though, it's something you've got to be thinking about because I think we're going to start to see changes on this. If I were, you know, waving my magic or looking at kind of the magic globe of what's, what's to, you know, what the, what the future holds, right. I absolutely think we're going to start seeing more changes about privacy, data regulation laws, what that means. Um, now, who knows when that will happen in the U.S., but yeah. but we should keep our eye on it. Yeah, that makes sense. So you, you want to be prepared for If you think it's coming down the pike, you want to be prepared for it so you learn more about it now and then maybe implement stuff you need to do so that it isn't a panic when you need to do Absolutely. it later. Absolutely. Makes sense. Yep. find myself hiring people who seem great during the interview and then turned out to be a disaster. <laughs> That's terrible. We're, we're nodding <laughs> at each other because we all have experienced this. Like, I don't know if I'm great to disaster, though. That's terrible. Okay. What is a good interview process or good interview questions I can use to attract and hire the right people in the future? What do you think, Stacey? Well, first rule, I think hiring can be a crapshoot. That's not very optimistic. I think you can have a great process. And until someone gets in the door... You don't always know how it's going to work out. You can do everything. And I've seen organizations do this. And you still end up with that person that you scratch your head and think, is this the same person, right? It's Jekyll and Hyde that was in the interview. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, now, I don't want to be you know, negative here. So I, I say taking that into consideration that some of this is a crapshoot. I think there's good interviewing techniques and processes I've seen. Uh, I've got my own ideas, but would love to hear yours too, Andy, on some of this. Uh, I think that, I mean, for me, the interview process and the, and then the actual activities that you have someone do once they are hired are two totally different things. So you could be, you could be really good at getting interviewed, um, really good at answering questions, like know the answer to all those dumb things that you ask, like, you know, <laughs> what's your biggest weakness and how you've already got locked and loaded. Well, my biggest weakness is that I'm a perfectionist and only do things right. perfectly, <laughs> you know, or whatever the thing you made up was. Um, and then once you get into the job, that's like a completely different thing. You need a totally different set of skills to interview well than you do to be able to work well with others and be able to get your work done on time and all that kind of stuff. So, um, 
my my experience has always been I always look for people who are passionate about the mission first. Um, even if they don't have the exact set of skills that I'm looking for or somebody yeah. that like doesn't seem to be like the perfect person for the right, position, right. if they're really passionate about the organization, I figure that's something that I can work with. And on the other hand, I've got a hair trigger when it comes to getting rid of people that aren't working out. So I use that that 90-day period. We've got always got a 90-day period that, you know, you just, you know, um, within the first 90 days, this is when you're going to display to us that you're capable of doing the job that we've hired you to do. And if I see it going sideways in that first 90 days, even if it's something minor, just letting you know that that's going to be the end of it. And I've done that. So here's one example. The hired a guy to do a job, super smart, um, really so connected well with the mission, was really friendly, liked people a lot, was really good with other people. Um, came in one day to notice that the server, our server was coming, running a little bit slow and it had, oh, I don't know, some ridiculous number of gigs of like music on it. So he'd come in and he'd hmm. like either downloaded from the internet or brought something from home and he had tons and tons and tons of music just saved on our server. I come to find out, I look a little bit further, he's downloading stuff, songs and things from the internet and putting them on the server. Not in a mean way, not like trying to steal, although that's what he was doing. He was right. just like trying to provide a radio station for the rest of the employees. Oh. But but from my position, it was like, you know, you can't have music that you've downloaded that you didn't buy or you didn't pay for sitting on my company's servers. That's not something that you're allowed to do. Thanks for playing. Goodbye. You know? So and it was a deal breaker <laughs> for you. That was that black and white. It wasn't a let me give you a warning. Not in that first 90 days. If that had happened on the 91st day, then we'd talk about like counseling and like let's make let's figure out how to make good and bad decisions. Um, but in that first 90 days, it's just a, it's a giant red flag. It's like this is somebody I'm going to have to mess with later. This is somebody who doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. And so let's right. let's take care of that now. <laughs> I think judgment and emotional intelligence is a huge piece of it, right? So there's the competency piece and then there's the character piece. Character can be tough to find out in an interview. I mean, competency, you can test for it. I know when I was uh, back in my days early on when I was doing PR, I had to go into a separate room for an hour and take a massive PR sort of test and kind of a scenario and how I would handle it. And so I believe that that's great to test competency and you can do that in a variety of fields. Right. Character takes a few other nuances. Uh, one of the things I've seen work really well is having other employees within the business that are maybe frontline employees be your eyes and ears for when that person comes in to interview. So this is a real life story and I can share it because uh, no one is going to sue me for this, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, am friends and know one of the owners of UPS stores or actually former owner. And at the time, this gentleman used to have people who were going to come in and, and be customer service at the UPS store. And he would stay in the back and he'd ask his staff to see how they held themselves when they came in, what their demeanor was like, how they interacted with the frontline staff asking to talk to the boss, uh, where when they sat there waiting, you know, were they getting impatient? What was, what was the whole vibe? And there was so much that if you could have had a hidden camera that you would see from just someone's behavior during that interlude, right? Waiting for the boss to come and interview them and how they treated someone who they viewed perhaps as lesser than them because sure. it was, right? I think there's some great stuff like that you can do that is really should be part of the process because you want to make sure someone can get along with everyone on your team. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. and also references. Okay, so here's my pet peeve about references. I'm going to go on a, on a tangent. How many times... Do I find nonprofits that say they hired a really significant position and it's someone that we all know has a bad reputation and that has been 
in a lot of positions perhaps in the community or that just doesn't, you know, speak for themselves as far as their reputation goes. And they never did a reference check. And maybe this nonprofit's just, you know, in the dark or desperate to find someone quickly. So they hire this person. And I think all of our hearts sink when we hear it because God knows, I mean, the nonprofit doesn't need that. You know, the person who's going through that is it's it's yet another, you know, position um, for them. Uh, so I think it can get really dicey when people don't don't try references. And, and also, I don't know if there's anything legally. You might know this because you're smarter at HR than I am. But but what about kind of informal networks trying to find out if what you want about an employee? Maybe it's not on the reference list. Is that permissible? You know, this would be a really good time for us to call in one of our experts so let's talk to Mary Beth Hartlib. She's the CEO of Prism Global Management Group. It's an HR consulting firm that's based in Henderson. Uh, Mary Beth, what do you think? So I think this is an excellent topic, and I am going to respond to this by starting out <laughs> by, by just talking about the hiring process just for a moment. If your listeners are experiencing difficulty in hiring, it's, it's probably going back to that entire hiring process, and that should probably be evaluated um, from questions being asked, how you're recruiting, things of that sort. But one key document in the hiring process is the employment application. And having worked with and currently working with a lot of nonprofits and also doing HR um, you know, reviews and audits and things like that, many times what I find is that it's kind of given a secondary glance, meaning get a resume, the person comes in for an interview, and maybe at the end of the interview, you're having that person, the applicant, complete the employment application. When in fact, the employment application gives you a wealth of information that you're not going to find on a resume. And so when you're looking at your process, I would encourage your listeners, if they're not currently doing this today, is one, have an employment application if you don't have one. And two, that should be the first document that someone fills out before anyone ever interviews them. The, the employment application is really considered a legal document where a resume is kind of like, hey, I'm kind of selling myself. It's a marketing piece, right? So, but the application itself, um, you know, where you list references, education, um, any other kind of information you're soliciting also should have a disclosure and an acknowledgement section from the applicant. And that disclosure basically tells the applicant, you know, we're going to investigate you. We're going to look into your background. We may check references, credit, uh, your employment history, education, credentials, all of these different things. And when the applicant signs that, that's essentially giving the employer permission to do just what your listener asked. So it's not just limited to what references are listed on the application, but certainly through your network. And it's, it's frankly, it's very common practice that you may ask a colleague like, hey, I know that you worked at, the, at this location during the same time that this applicant did. What can you tell me about them? Uh, it's a very common practice. It's considered ethical. It's, it's certainly legal. Um, the one caveat I would say, and most employment applications ask this question when an applicant is listing references, is, you know, is it okay to contact that reference? And the, the, the gray area I think we get into ethically is current employers. Many times applicants are looking 
but still currently employed. And it would be devastating to their career uh, if their current employer was contacted. And so I think we need to acknowledge that to an applicant and assure them that, you know, we would never cross that line. That, that is an ethical line. Um, however, you know, any other kind of check that you want to do, uh, as long as it's in the parameters of the law, and as long as that applicant has signed that acknowledgement on the application, um, you're, you're free to do so. And I encourage that um, because it's, it's, it is a big piece of the hiring process. And as an employer, all employers, nonprofit and otherwise, we have a legal obligation to do due diligence on who we're hiring because we have a legal obligation to provide a safe working environment. So we want to know who we're hiring and we want to do that due diligence to protect ourselves and protect our employees. Here's one. When does it make sense to get board insurance? We are a Nevada nonprofit membership-based organization with 120 members. We do educational outreach and hold an annual conference. Our small membership fee covers the newsletter and journal we produce each year. We have less than $20,000 in assets, so $900 a year for board insurance is a large expense. Do we need to get insurance? Yes, yes, and yes. That is my response. And yes, insurance people, you can pay me a commission on the side. So <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. No, um, in all seriousness, though, uh, I know it's tough when you're small. Uh, it may not be financially feasible. It can feel like a big chunk because that is a big chunk when you look at the percentage of that for a $20,000 you know, revenue-based organization. But at the end of the day, I go, how can you afford not to do it? You have one bad circumstance or a board member who potentially makes a mistake because we're talking here directors and officers insurance yeah. probably. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's different types of insurance and I'm not an insurance expert, but you know, you've got the general liability and then the DNO, which is the directors and officers. And I think for sure DNO because you've got board members who often times have never been board members before. They've got fiduciary duty. What if there is just an oversight? What if some mistake is made? And unfortunately, in the Sue Happy Society, if there's not enough assets in the organization, people can then go personally go after that board member. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, every every organization that I'm with, we have DNO, even some tiny ones, we have DNO insurance, uh, directors and officers insurance, just, just for that reason, just to protect the board members' individual assets so that they mm -hmm. don't become liable for something that some other board member did. Um, so yeah, I agree with you completely. Yeah. And there's also, there's a resource nonprofit risk management center, and I know they have a lot of articles on this. So if the board wants to do some further research, they can look at it. And perhaps get a few bids. I'm a big believer of get a few bids because I've seen organizations about the same size, around $20,000 in assets that have had something closer to $600. I mean, you need to make sure you're comparing apples to oranges or apples to apples and not apples to oranges. Or <laughs> right. you can compare apples to oranges too. <laughs> yeah, if you want to, that's fine. So we'll put, the, we'll put that link in the show notes so that you can, you don't have to remember it. You can go look it up. I've been in nonprofit all my life, and I've never felt a need to share the budget with my staff. Recently, I changed positions, and now I'm a senior staffer at a new nonprofit, and they believe in giving every employee access to the budget. What is best practice for who you share your budget with? Hmm. So I'm not sure I know what best practice is. Um, and maybe you do. I, I think certainly every organization that I've ever been with, either from the CFO level on down, 
um, we've made it a point to share the budget with absolutely everybody. And the reason we do that is because we want everybody to know what money there is to spend and how the money comes in. And it gives them, it lets them sort of focus their attention on what's important and what's not important. Um, the only time I see that it gets touchy is when we get around salaries. And that's when, um, HR or the executive director or somebody in charge doesn't want to have to have the conversation with everybody about why this person is getting paid more than that person. Um, and the, you know, the, the reality is in the nonprofit world, everybody knows what everybody makes anyway. I think that's probably true in the for-profit world yeah. too. It's like everybody knows what everybody else makes. Like somebody has peeped at the payroll records and they know what it is, <laughs> but in nonprofits, everything is so much more transparent. It's all available for that. Any grant, request that somebody, if you're doing a grant application and you're turning that in, that's got a whole bunch of salary information on it. So all that stuff is public and available too. Um, so I'm not quite sure what the, I guess maybe you can help me, Stacey. Why would you not want to share your budget with, with your whole staff? So I have heard people push back about doing that from a sense of wanting to be in a position of control, of controlling things, and they feel like they lose control with that. I actually think it does just the opposite. I, I've heard people's, there's a fear that comes in from some executive directors about not wanting staff to judge how certain spense, expenses or, you know, why does that department get more than my department, uh, okay. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I get that. I also think hopefully you've got some reason behind your budget that's aligned with your strategic plan <laughs> that you explain. Hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, <laughs> you know, because transparency is key and this is a public it's a public charity, and it's public for a, a reason. Uh, people should have access to it. And on the salary line item, I go, I've seen, I don't know about you, Andy, but I, I've seen several budgets that sometimes you have individual salaries, but sometimes it's lumped together, or sometimes it's by department, if it's a large enough organization, program department, fundraising department, admin, um, or, or some combination. And so I think there's also ways if people don't want to just flat out say, you know, Joe Smith is making 70 grand a year, they can actually lump it into this general salary line item if they feel a need to do that. Yeah. So there's a, that's, I mean, I work, I've worked for bigger organizations and that's what we did. So we have a department, it's got a handful of people in it. You can mash them all together so that the you show the department salaries and you can sort of see where you're at there. Most smaller organizations, you may have a program code or a, a, a group that's made up of exactly one person. And so that person's salary is the total. And so yes. it just, it, it, you know, that information, you just have to assume it's out there. So there's a, there's a, and I wish I knew the, um, the name of the company or the name of the system, but there was a, a guy that ran a factory. It's probably in the 1970s. And he decided at some point that he was going to make his books 100% transparent. So he was going to, he, and this is totally unusual to do in the for-profit sector. So he made everything 100% transparent. Everybody knew what everybody made. They knew where they were purchasing the products for, what their labor costs were, what they were selling things for. And they actually did a whole bunch of training to train all of these factory workers who were putting together things um, about how finances work and how to read financial statements. And the result, because of that, they actually, and that company ended up doing really, really well because the workers then started to sort of understand, well, okay, if we're making this much profit because we're spending these kinds of things, we can actually come up with ways to do things less expensively and we can make the company more money and that means we can maybe get paid more. And so it was this sort of awesome. self-reinforcing thing where the understanding how all the finances work and having a really good handle on that really had a positive effect on the company. 
I'm always shocked when I hear nonprofits, regardless of size, when they aren't sharing the budget. Uh, there's one in particular that I recently was working with that talked about how none of their senior staff, it's about a 15, uh, you know, staff organization, and none of their director levels know what the budget is, don't have access to it, don't even create their own budget. And I can't imagine being a director and not having the opportunity to think be part of the planning for the organization for the year ahead and the forecasting and then having ownership over that budget piece. Um, because, and that's sort of that, that that's not the huge organization yet, but it's definitely the mid-sized organization. And to a lot of the, the, our listeners probably it's, it feels huge, right? <laughs> having 15, 15 staff, oh wouldn't we all like that? <laughs> but I was still shocked because, um, it was just, and there wasn't really a good rhyme or reason other than that's the way it's always been done. And I think sometimes we fall into that trap in, in the sector of, okay, it, it, it grew quickly and maybe that's the way it was done at the beginning, but does that still make sense? Yeah. That's how we see that a lot. I'm sure that question is going to come up a lot I'm too. Sure. It's like what, how do we transition from being a baby organization to a grown up organization? But yeah, that sounds like a baby organization thing where there's one person that's in charge of yes. putting it together, one person responsible for everything. And then you grow to a certain size and you forget that the reason you hired directors is so that they could actually direct things <laughs> and you can't direct anything if you don't have any handle on any of the money pieces of it, unless I don't know, your, your nonprofit uses magic or something. And think about how annoying, just, I mean, put yourself in the shoes for a minute of, let's say you're the executive director of an organization like that. Any expense that your director has for the program or is needed, it's almost, it's, it's, it's a backlog of, oh, getting permission, then asking for permission to spend that money. If they're not given any kind of budget guidelines, am I allowed to take this person out to lunch or am I not? I mean, good yeah. grief. Yeah. Not very efficient. And so many times, you know, I see the same thing with uh, boards of they start with organizations that are very small and then they have their, you know, they go from the operating board where everybody's got a responsibility to get, you know, activities done to more of a governing board and having all of those processes that you had in place for the operating board never go away. So you end up with, you know, we have to write a check for $50 and I have to go (laughs) track down two board members to get them to sign it, which is like, you know, and then you ask like, why are you doing that? Well, we've always done that. Right. <laughs> right. Like, well, don't. Stop doing it. <laughs> and guess what? I don't judge that because it is so easy to just get into patterns and just doing things business as usual. Yeah. And, and There's just, so much stuff to do. So is. much daily work there to do is. that like think stepping back and looking at processes is Ugh. just the last thing that anybody wants oh, to do. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's, it's painful. <laughs> it's terrible. So that's it for another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Thanks again for tuning in, finding it wherever you managed to find it. Um, we'd encourage you to go to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits webpage, uh, push the podcast button. Um, you can see this episode and other episodes, future episodes and past episodes there as well. There's a ask a question section. Please ask us questions. The only way this actually works is if people ask us questions, because if Stacy and I are just making the questions up, it's going to be really dumb. Oh, yeah. You don't <laughs> want our questions. And we can get nerdy and technical. And we want like real life questions and situations. And it doesn't matter whether you're a board member, you're a donor, you're a staff member that's just starting out. We want to hear from everybody and anybody. Yeah. And if you could do us a favor, if you enjoyed this podcast, go to the iTunes store, find our podcast and give us a five-star rating. Please. That really helps. So um, 
one of the ways you can you can share it, but that actually allows us to sort of slip up the rankings a little bit further. So if somebody does type nonprofit into the the search bar, we will come up somewhere on the first page instead of on the 353rd page, <laughs> which would be fantastic. We know you can all appreciate that. We're all trying to get up there, right? That first page of Google is is my goal in life. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks, we'll guys. See you in a couple of weeks. Uh-huh.